Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and unless you've been living on Mars for the last week, you will have heard that scientists have discovered possible signs of life in the atmosphere of Venus. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the story behind that discovery. We'll hear from two of the key scientists in the discovery and look at some of the fascinating science that led to this amazing announcement. We're here to tell you we have detected a rare gas called phosphine in the atmosphere of our neighbour planet, Venus. And the reason for our excitement is that phosphine gas on Earth is made by microorganisms that live in oxygen-free environments. And so there is a chance that we have detected some kind of living organisms in the clouds of Venus. That was Professor Jane Greaves making the announcement at the Royal Astronomical Society's press conference. I'll let two more of the scientists behind this discovery explain exactly how this all came to be. But just to say that phosphine is a gas made up of one phosphorus and three hydrogen atoms. Professor Sarah Seeger is a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and is known, well at least until last week, primarily for her work on extrasolar planets and their atmospheres. The story starts about 2015-2016 with Professor Jane Greaves from Cardiff University, UK. She did something incredibly bold she decided to search for signs of life in the Venus atmosphere. Now, this is bold because the search for life is very fringe in general, and on Venus, it's just crazy. So what she did was she scientifically looked through all of the the literature, like published journal papers, not in physics, though, but more in biology, trying to find a suitable gas that she could look for that might indicate life. And I'm so impressed with Jane because she came across these quite obscure papers on phosphine, Phosphine being associated with life on Earth. Over complex mixtures of bacteria, it has been measured in the environment, in anoxic environments, like oxygen-free environments. So she proposed to use a radio telescope called the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope. It's in Mauna Kea, Hawaii, to look for this atmospheric absorption line of phosphine in Venus. She told us that initially she got rejected, which, you know, okay, is kind of maybe expected, yeah. And then her second proposal was accepted. Now, I had known Jane from a very long time ago. In the early days of exoplanets, there weren't very many people, so I met her at a few meetings. But I hadn't seen her in a very long time, decade or more. But completely separate from Jane, my team was also studying phosphine gas, not in the context of Venus, but when we think about searching for signs of life on planets far away, exoplanets that orbit stars other than the sun. And this is pretty futuristic, but my team is searching through literally every possible molecule that's in gas form at room temperature and pressure. And phosphine was one of the first ones we took a look at in detail. And we came across those same obscure papers (laughs) that Jane did. And we wrote a few different papers on phosphine as associated with life as a biosignature gas for exoplanets. We'll get back to this story shortly, but these obscure papers are worth a detour. First, I need to introduce you to Clara Sousa Silva. I'm a quantum astrochemist at MIT and I study the way molecules interact with light. I study how molecules vibrate when they interact with light and the unique fingerprint they leave on the light that passes through them. And I use that to try and detect molecules in faraway places like exoplanets. But because this behavior is a behavior that obeys the quantum rules of the quantum world, 
um, I need to use quantum chemistry to do that. So I use quantum chemistry and space that makes me a quantum astrochemist. As we'll see, Clara is more than a little instrumental in this whole discovery. But first, here she is explaining the link between phosphine and penguins. Both Jane and I uh, kind of came to the conclusion that phosphine might be a biosignature independently, partially because we both came across the penguin dunk paper that, and now there's several actually, that basically describes phosphine being present just above uh, where penguins poop and in penguins poop. That's not just penguins, um, Jane picked that up, but for my, uh, my paper that came out a few months ago that I've been working on and had submitted when Jane reached out, I read every paper that mentioned phosphine that had ever been peer-reviewed and published. And so I collected a long list of farts and poops from different animals that had mentions of phosphine. And so I had a long list of intestines that had uh, had phosphine detect on them. It includes not just uh, penguins, but also badgers and uh, fish and babies, human babies. And so it's quite uh, likely that most animals' guts um, produce phosphine to some extent. How do you fit into this amazing story from Venus? So I did my PhD on phosphine. So I did my quantum astrochemistry on phosphine first. I've been working on phosphine for about a decade now. I um, simulated all the ways, all the tiny, tiny ways in which phosphine interacts with light, um, which in case you're wondering is 16.8 billion ways. Um, And one of those ways uh, was detected on Venus uh, by Jane preliminarily um, in 2017. I had by then uh, started writing this uh, huge paper, huge in size, not an impact in case you're wondering. about phosphine as a possible biosignature. At the time, no one cared about phosphine. Um, I had spent a lot of time in front of bored audiences trying to convince them phosphine was a good biosignature. One of those times, uh, someone in the audience knew Jane and contacted her. So when Jane contacted me at the end of 2018, I had just submitted a paper that I'd been working on for a long time saying, if you find phosphine hypothetically on any terrestrial planet, hypothetically, it can only mean life. And it wasn't really an outrageous claim until Jane reached out and said, I think I found phosphine on Venus. I think it's weird. Is it weird? Uh, And I said, yes, it's very weird. Are you 100% sure? And that was the beginning of our collaboration. I brought in the whole MIT team that had been working on my paper on a hypothetical planet. And we started working with Jane's team, who had been trying to observe it again. Sarah Seeger picks up the story. When I first heard about her detection, I just was so sceptical. Yeah. Because it's just, it shouldn't be there. Phosphine shouldn't be in the atmosphere. And so, you know, as you know, in science, it's not a sure thing. It's not like, okay, we found this. It's not like you found the snow leopard and you have a picture. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, there's a signal. It's not as strong as we'd like. We need more information. And we helped with a proposal to ALMA, Atacama Large Millimeter Array, which is a more powerful telescope. Because her first signal from the James Clerk Maxwell, it was a significant signal, but not as robust as you would like. And together, we did observe it again, and we applied all the work that I'd done for my paper for a hypothetical planet to the concrete example of Venus to try and explain how could it possibly be that there's phosphine on the clouds of Venus. And we couldn't. I think people like to hear how science happens because they don't really realize. Like the fact that Jane purposely went to look for 
a biosignature gas on Venus. I think it's really amazing. Yeah, it really is. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I hadn't heard of phosphine. Right. Most people haven't. Why would you have? It's it's so niche, so obscure. It's not a molecule. It's not like carbon dioxide or methane. It's nothing that really we encounter in our even scientific reading. Most people hadn't considered phosphine, but Clara Souza Silva had been so for a decade or more. When I started my PhD, we I worked at um, a group called Eximol, and they simulate molecules of astronomical interest. So there's a long list that we will never get through. Um, but phosphine was one of those molecules. And when I was figuring out what to do with my PhD, and when my PhD supervisor was figuring out what to assigned to me. Phosphine was a, a, a special molecule because it's really quite simple. It's a podcast, so you can't see it, but here it is on the screen. It's quite simple, and it's really important in Jupiter and Saturn to understand the dynamic behavior of the atmosphere. But we don't understand it very well. Well, we do now, but we didn't at the time. We, have, we had very little information about the way it interacts with light. And that just seemed outrageous. It seemed like fundamental information that we as a species should just have as part of, you know, a long, boring reference book. Uh, but we didn't. And that's what I spent the four years of my PhD doing, just simulating every tiny way that phosphine behaves so we can detect it remotely anywhere in the galaxy. Initially, I was looking much further than Venus. I was looking everywhere but next door. So I'm deeply thankful to Jane for looking at Venus. Yeah, you've just said that we need to understand phosphine to understand Saturn and Jupiter. So doesn't that mean phosphine is in Saturn and Jupiter? And therefore, doesn't that mean that there's possibly life in those planets? I wish I could say yes, but I can categorically <laughs> categorically say no. Um, on Jupiter and Saturn, it is strange to see phosphine right at the observable layers of the atmosphere where we see it, because thermodynamically speaking, it shouldn't be there. So it is still strange, but not so strange that we cannot explain it. In Jupiter and Saturn, it is possible to explain it and plausible um, that the formation of phosphine uh, occurs. It just doesn't occur where we see it. Jupiter and Saturn and other gas giants and even stars um, have regions in their depths that are hot enough and have sufficient hydrogen pressure, so enough hydrogen, enough pressure, um, to make phosphine viable, to make it chemically something that just happens spontaneously, accidentally, with no will or, or, or sacrifice. It just happens. And those places are usually really hellish and hidden, but in Jupiter and Saturn you also have violent currents that can dredge the phosphine from where it's comfortably at to where it's very much not comfortably at, but we still see it. And so in Jupiter and Saturn, we have been able to explain it for a long time. It's a really neat marker for convection, but it's not a deep astrobiological mystery the same way it is on Venus. Okay. Why is it such a mystery on Venus then? Venus and Earth and really any terrestrial planet uh, that we can conceive of has no access to any regions as extreme as those that you find in the depths of Jupiter and Saturn. And so on Earth, as an example, where there is phosphine, it is exclusively associated with life, which makes sense. We don't have anywhere on Earth sufficiently intense, other than in the lab, that can lead phosphine to just happen. 
the phosphorus atom doesn't really want to be with hydrogens in any normal situations. And hydrogens have much better stuff to do, like bond with oxygen to make water or with carbon to make methane. So it's not something that just happens normally. To actually make phosphine happen on terrestrial planets, seemingly you need to inject a lot of energy into the system and make a lot of phosphorus and hydrogen available. And that's not something that happens easily. So on Earth, it's only associated with life. And in that bucket of life, it is both produced naturally by anaerobic life. We don't know exactly how. We just know they do with a lot of effort. That's not surprising. Life loves sacrificing stuff. Uh, sacrificing energy to make molecules is something life is totally willing to, make, to do. And through human ingenuity, um, through a lot of effort. So on Venus, we're left at this weird uh, halfway point. Venus is definitely a stranger, more extreme place than Earth, but nothing like Jupiter and Saturn. And so we have tried really hard to explain how phosphine could possibly be on Venus. And we cannot. And so I, we propose this, and obviously people have grabbed onto it very uh, strongly, that it is possible. In fact, it's kind of our only plausible explanation, as fantastical as that sounds, that by analogy with phosphine production on Earth, on Venus, it may also be produced by some biosphere. Tell me how you and all the other scientists can know that there's phosphine on Venus, or indeed on an exoplanet. So if you can get light from anywhere, you can break that light into its spectrum, which is kind of like a rainbow, just with more colors. Um, and that spectrum, if the light is completely pure and has gone through nothing, is just a continuous stream of colors and, um, and invisible colors in the ultraviolet and the infrared. But if that light goes through any gas at all, molecules in that gas, will absorb quantized bits of that light, which correspond to specific wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum and roughly colors of the rainbow. Um, but the rules of the quantum world are very strict. You can only absorb quantized amounts of energy, which means that if you know exactly which wavelengths of light a molecule can absorb, you can look for those wavelengths to be missing from the light from a planet or a star. And if they are, you know that light must have gone through a gas that has that molecule. So I spent my PhD figuring out exactly every wavelength of light that phosphine will absorb or emit. Um, and I calculated 16.8 billions of those, and we found one of those missing from the light from Venus, specifically in the only region of Venus that is even remotely habitable. So that's why it's such a big deal even okay. though it's just one one of those features. It yeah. is a very good one. They're not all equally good. And this one is a particularly neat, isolated, easy to remove from noise and neighboring features from other molecules. And so not all 16.8 billion are equally good. And we focused on a particularly good one. Okay, so do you have any sense of what sort of life might be causing that? not without wild speculation, but I will admit I often do think about these potential Venusians. Um, basically, there's only two options if there is life. It's either similar biochemistry to us or different biochemistry to us. If it is similar biochemistry to us, then it needs a lot of water 
and it likes to avoid sulfuric acid. And the clouds of Venus, although temperate with nice pressures and quite good radiation from the sun, you know, enough light to get energy, not so much that it frazzles you. It is really bad for any biochemistry like ours that loves water and doesn't much care for acid. But if it is a different biochemistry from us, maybe it finds acid not quite so abhorrent. Maybe it doesn't need as much water as we do. And in that case, they may be rather comfortable in the clouds of Venus. And I certainly hope so. If they're anything like us, it must be a horrific life. You know, spending every day just desperately avoiding your own environment, fighting over the tiny molecules of water that are few and far between, watching your ever-shrinking habitable uh, envelope of the atmosphere disappear and having witnessed a mass extinction and, and, and living through the last days of a barely living planet. So my heart goes out to them. I hope they're nothing like us, if they're there. Yeah. But it, so if they're not there, then what is causing the phosphine? Your guess is as good as mine. I don't think it is, you know. <laughs> We don't know. We tried everything. All the chemistry we knew, all the physics we knew, all the thermodynamics we knew. We are experts in phosphine, quantum chemistry, biochemistry, atmospheric dynamics, Venus modeling. And we tried everything. And we tried normal things and crazy things like bismuth snow, interacting with something, tectonic plates, uh, creating plasma through shear. We tried anything. And we just couldn't make phosphine in anything but trivial amounts with any abiotic processes. Now, we don't have a complete knowledge of phosphine and how it interacts with other um, atmospheric constituents, even on Earth, never mind somewhere like Venus. We don't have a particularly good understanding of what's happening on Venus. And we don't have an exhaustive knowledge of geochemistry and uh, photochemistry. And so it's possible we just missed something. We know phosphine is hard to make, but we know it's possible. So we're now hoping and waiting for the scientific community to come and explain what we missed. I've seen a lot of hot takes already so far, but none that we haven't addressed. So We'll come to some of those hot takes shortly. But when you've been working on something so exciting for so long, I can only imagine how it feels to finally be able to talk about it. Here's Sarah Seeger again. Well, the reaction from the journalists and the press has been absolutely overwhelming. I have been involved with some other discoveries in the past, and I've been like a third-party commentator for a huge number in exoplanets. And I've never seen this level of interest. It's uh... <laughs> So now, by the way, the press is coming back a second time. So they all wrote their initial articles, and now everyone's coming back again to like do a more kind of thoughtful, why has Venus been ignored? Talk about the missions that might go there. So it's actually not just like a you know, the news story of the day, it's kind of growing even. Mm. And the press conference, they told us there were, the Royal Astronomical Society that put on the press conference said there were 27,000 viewers, but there were, that's a huge number for science. Like for your sports teams, I know football is very popular where you are here, not as much. So we'll get 25,000 fans at our games. It's still a lot of people. It's not nearly as much as you'll get, but having 27,000 for a science topic, that's like rivaling like a big sports game. It's so many people in each of, and there's way more than that because some people view the live stream, but then they propagate that live stream to their own group, right? So there's probably 
way more. So that was overwhelming. And then just the excitement and just the sheer number of journalists and the level it's going to. So there's like talk show hosts that don't normally cover anything about science. They're calling now. So it's really, um, really propagated. So that was really not expected. Then the response from the scientific community has been equally, I don't know if amusing is the right word, but equally, wow. Because we expect people to be skeptical, right? That's scientists and journalists, right? We're trained and just we're selected, like we're self-selected to be skeptical. But there have been a lot of, uh, someone invented a new name called chemsplaining. I don't know, do you know what mansplaining is? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's the term that oftentimes if a woman says something and then the man just says the same thing, but louder and more aggressively. So there've been a lot of people saying it can't be life. It's, it's this specific chemical reaction, but they haven't thought about it very much or they haven't read the paper. So it's chemsplaining. But the way I think about it is the team, like myself and the other team members, we've had, in my case, two years, you know, in the other members in the lead, four or five years to think about this. So we've had a long time to criticize ourselves, to work through chemistry, we had the harsh reviewers of the paper and we responded to that, but everybody else has only had a couple of days. So I'm sort of watching them trying to process in two days what we had two or more years to process. So that, that has been like a psychological mind-numbing experience. So are you finding people are coming round now? Too? Some, I mean, it's been interesting. Yes, like, so one prominent scientist who I won't name sent an email to this very large email list and said, just ignore this, it's all wrong, it's hype. Because we all know phos- we all know that Jupiter and Saturn have phosphine. Now Jupiter and Saturn have phosphine, but they also have a lot of hydrogen. Because remember, phosphine is a phosphorus atom and three hydrogen atoms. Venus and Earth have almost no hydrogen. And also, for phosphine to form in equilibrium chemistry, you need a pretty high temperature and pressure, which even Venus doesn't have. But the giant planets they have those high temperatures and pressures very deep in the atmosphere. So someone responded that. That what I just told you. Someone said, no, actually, that's not, that's not a reason to discard. Let's keep digging. We had another really funny comment I liked by a third party, like a third person in defense that said, well, everybody, if you have a counter argument, you can write that up and submit it to a peer-reviewed journal, just like the authors did. So there are people defending both the scientific reasons and just the sort of more cultural, philosophical side of it. Yeah. I, I, you say you find it sort of amusing well i don't know if amusing is the right word it's there's a lot of words um i wish i was better at words yeah like frustrating upsetting amusing fascinating psychologically Mm. intriguing you know it's Mm. there's just so many words that are popping into my head and like our team will forward it to each other have you seen this and not everyone's an expert each person on the team brings something so the chemistry questions get forward to dr william baines or dr anish petkowski And then we're actually not responding point by point right now. We're just sort of waiting till things get turned around a little and people have time to actually read the paper and think through it before responding. Hmm. Has has there been anything in all these messages that you've gone, oh yeah, we hadn't thought of that? Not yet. Okay. But you hope that there is? I won't say I hope that there is, but we won't mind if there is. Okay. It's sort of, you know, do you want to be the crazy person who's claiming there's life on Venus? (laughs) <laughs> like, do you, would you want to be that person? I mean, it's yeah, yeah. much more of a relief if, in a way, if you don't have to want to resort to the life hypothesis. If you can say, wow, yeah. there is this fascinating chemistry that shouldn't be happening. Yeah. 
That would be pretty nice, actually. It was a few days after this that I spoke to Clara and she mentioned an idea which had come in. Recently, someone mentioned uh, perhaps solo win interactions and it's true, we hadn't considered. Apparently, someone on the team had had considered them, but um, the solar wind doesn't go anywhere deep enough to affect phosphine. Phosphine already gets destroyed if it makes it to the upper atmosphere of Venus because of the interaction with the sun through photolysis. And so, although solar wind could have some impact on, on phosphine chemistry up on the cloud tops, phosphine, we don't expect, makes it there anyway. So, no, we hadn't thought of it, but um, <laughs> uh, it doesn't really affect our calculations. Uh, but yes, right. we've had a lot of people, um, some good faith, some bad faith, but so far, nothing that is not addressed in our companion paper, at least, which is this 100-page description of us driving ourselves mad trying to explain this discovery. Does it annoy you when you get some of these responses? Oh, no, no. I mean... I would be disappointed in the scientific community if they weren't at least as skeptical as I am. Um, and as kind of someone who loves phosphine, I've dedicated my career to phosphine, I expect to be biased myself. And although I do find this an extraordinary discovery and it seems implausible that it could be life, I'm aware that personally, emotionally, professionally, I'm invested in it being life. And so... People should be more skeptical than me. Um, I welcome it completely. And I expect people to show me where I went wrong. I just want them to know I, I did my best. We all did our best. We were trying to explain it in any other way. But as they say, nobody has yet. It's such a fantastical story, though. Let's go back to my conversation with Sarah Seeger. I, I really struggle with it as an idea. I love it. Don't get me wrong. I completely love it. But what I don't know, because I don't have your knowledge and the rest of the team's knowledge, I don't know why life is still, at this moment, the most likely one. Oh, it's not. But we never said it's the most likely one. Okay. I think a way to say it, at least the way I like to say it, is we have two possibilities and both are equally crazy. So finding some kind of chemistry that produces phosphine in the amounts we've discovered and the thought that life has to be there producing phosphine, that is equally offensive, maybe. I mean, it's equally just, yeah, it doesn't seem right. If I'd met you six months ago and I'd said to you, what are you most excited about? Would you have been able to tell me about this? No, because I think by six months ago, the team was confident in the results and we had finished working out all of our analysis. But the paper was under review at that point and we didn't. You know, it's, we knew that if it, like, when you make a big discovery, usually you keep it quiet, especially until it's been peer-reviewed and all the I's have been dotted and the T's have been crossed, so to speak. So I wouldn't, but I probably would have told you I was working on Venus. Okay. And I was working on it in another context because my team members had pushed me to write another paper, which came out a couple months ago, because they wanted me to help plug some holes in the whole concept about life on Venus as follows, like, if there's life in the atmosphere on Venus, it probably has to live inside the liquid droplets protected from the very dry environment outside. But in these droplets, life would live and reproduce, but the droplets collide and they grow over time. So over months to a year, the droplets get so massive, they would start falling out of the atmosphere. Like rain, but slower. 
Like we didn't want to have our discovery paper come out and not have tried to plug that hole. So I was working on Venus. I did have a paper. So I could probably say, you know, there's this really speculative topic about life in the atmosphere of Venus and it's been worked on for 50 years and I decided to work on it now. And you might have mm-hmm. said, why? It's like, I don't know, just for something different. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Oh, is it difficult to keep a lid on something like this? Like yes and no. Sometimes it feels a bit dishonest because even to people at my team at MIT, I couldn't tell them. Like they, some of them knew we were working on Venus, but we had to leave some people in the dark. And at the same time, I'd started leading a small team on a mission concept study to Venus. And this is actually sponsored by an outside group. They've been interested in a mission concept study to go to Venus and search for life for a few years. So it was also independent. But I also couldn't tell them either. And the small team I brought together, I couldn't tell them. So it was more like the hard to keep a secret part wasn't like I minded keeping it secret out of respect for the discovery team. But I did feel badly, like I felt dishonest to my team that I couldn't share why we were doing this. But I think that also goes to show people are so interested anyway, they would have worked on it anyway. That is just brilliant. And it's one of the things that I love about this story, actually, just as an aside, is this coming when it does in the middle of this global pandemic. I think we all need a little bit of something just to allow us to daydream and to escape to another world, even if it's just for a moment. So with these scientists coming along with this story about the possibility of life on Venus... I just can't quite imagine that they managed to keep it completely secret. Here's Clara Souza Silva. I told my dad. Um, okay. <laughs> I broke the embargo and told my dad. <laughs> and told my therapist. Apparently that was okay. I checked first. Um, but yes, it's a little hard, particularly because I'd spent so much time in the previous eight years really pushing for phosphine to be considered at all in astronomy. And in the past four years, really pushing for it to be considered a good, robust biosignature. I'd submitted my paper, it was published. And so I was, you know, giving talks, really carefully introducing phosphine and no one cared. You know, no one wanted to hear me talk about phosphine as a biosignature. And so knowing at the same time that very soon they would care a lot um, made it very hard to not tried to wake up, wake up half of my <laughs> bored audience with, you want to pay attention to this, I promise, <laughs> you know. Um, but the whole time I was keeping the secret, the whole time we were, you know, worried about, did we miss something really big? Did, you know, was something not included? And so it wasn't like I was just waiting, keeping the secret. We were working really hard. And the whole time I was leading the effort to try to do follow-up observations in the infrared um, so tried to take another feature of phosphine because I knew when the news broke, people would quite legitimately complain that we made the detection of only one of those 16.8 billion features. And I did get awarded time, which was lovely, but with COVID, every single observational follow-up has been cancelled. Um, we've been using telescopes like IRTF and SOFIA, but really any telescope that anyone has that you would like to try and use to look at phosphine on venus that would be wonderful i'm really hoping the community kind of gets together and does this much needed science so there was a lot of work happening behind the scenes i wasn't just sitting and frustrated with my own secret keeping now i don't know about you but i still had this question can you just just briefly tell me how it is possible 
that it's life on Venus? I can try, but we don't, nobody knows that. One thing I can tell you, I can give you some kind of supporting evidence. Well, life on Earth, there is some life on Earth that lives in the clouds temporarily, and it's bacteria that's upswept from the surface and it floats around in the atmosphere. Some of life is inside cloud droplets. And it doesn't stay very long, but our clouds are temporary. They come and go. But on Venus, the cloud cover is permanent. It's always there. It's 100% covering the planet. It's very extensive vertically. But here on Earth, the life doesn't have to live in the clouds, and it only stays up there for a week or so, and it comes back down. So there is a precedent, you know, for life living in the clouds. That's definitely there. The other really key evidence of supporting argument is on Earth, light, phosphine is only associated with life. There's really no way for it to be produced by volcanoes or lightning or meteorites in any significant quantity. So that's also really a key factor. Now on Venus itself, we honestly don't know. We just, we do appreciate how incredibly harsh that atmosphere is. It's so dry, drier than the driest place on Earth, 50 times drier than the driest place on Earth. The liquid droplets, they're not made of water. They're made of concentrated sulfuric acid. And that's a nasty, nasty chemical. All building blocks of our life will be destroyed nearly instantly in sulfuric acid. I know I'm not making a very good case for it. You asked how. So, you know, some life there will have to be very different from our life, or it will have to have some kind of protective casing. And people have written about this before. They've imagined an elemental sulfur shell. They could have a wax shell, maybe graphite. There are materials that do withstand sulfuric acid. Okay, but is that so? There's nothing on Earth. There's no, tardigrades wouldn't survive it. No, my older son, he's 17. He did a summer internship. You know how there's like because of coronavirus, there's also like no jobs and no sports this summer. He did a summer internship with my team with Dr. Anish Petkowski, and he searched the literature for like all the different. Um, metals and materials that were or were not resistant to sulfuric acid and he pushed to do some experiments. So we did some experiments and we did accidentally kill some life. It was bad. Yeah. Okay. Well, one was purposeful because if you're a 17 year old, you'd probably grab an ant. Like it was kind of bad. He put an ant in the sulfuric acid and then immediately had a seizure. And within about, I don't know, 20 seconds or so, it was just like a puddle of mush. Yeah. Then we were, we did our experiments outdoors though, because we don't have a proper lab. So we just needed it to be air circulating. Another time, I know I really love animals and I'm what, I shouldn't be so even attached to insects, but a caterpillar uh, dropped down. Like we have a porch, but we were outside just doing some final cleaning and this caterpillar dropped down. Like we have to neutralize the sulfuric acid before properly disposing of it. And this caterpillar dropped down out of the blue and we grabbed it out as fast as we could. And it looked like it was going to be fine because just, you know, but it didn't. Like it just kind of got, it was okay for like a short time. And then it just got paralyzed and then it didn't move. You know, if you do experiments, you can learn a lot intuitively that you wouldn't have known otherwise. Hmm. He tried so many materials that wax, like that was one thing. Like we just tried things we had around the house. Then we purposely, you know, purchased like minerals and combinations of ground up rocks and things like that. So what the uh, caterpillar made me think is, is there any kind of gauge that we could use to see how long the life, if it was life, it would need to be living in the clouds? Is there any sense of we know how much of it there is? No, 
we don't have any numbers like that for you. I mean, life in the clouds would have to reproduce. That's maybe the key thing. It has to live long enough to reproduce. But that's about all I can say. Science like this doesn't get done by one person. As we've been hearing, it's a whole group of people from a whole group of disciplines. In the past, there have been some perhaps even more controversial um, papers on astrobiology. They end up being kind of single authors or two authors. And I don't think that's very good to help us legitimize the field. And, and part of that is because astrobiology, by its very nature, really needs to be interdisciplinary. You know, this team seems large, but we really couldn't have done this on our own. You know, even I had my own paper doing kind of a hypothetical theoretical prediction of this, and that needed a village. And so to actually observe it somewhere, particularly nearby, you need observers. You need people who know instrumentation well, who know how to reduce data. You need multiple people of those to try and do independent models so you're not biased by your own. You need someone to know the spectra really well, a quantum chemist. You need someone to know how each transition broadens depending on how abundant the molecule is. Otherwise, you don't know how much of that molecule there is. You need people who can do Venus models, who can do photochemicals models, ideally several of those. For that, we had Sukri Ranjan and Paul Rimmer. And for the Venus models, we had Hideo Sagawa in Japan. And you need people who know biochemistry, like William Baines and Janusz Petkowski. And without all the observation team, Anita and, and Helen and Emily and Jane, of course, none of this could work. And it's only by having all of these people collaborating with one another that you can really get not just a robust detection, but a good analysis of what it means. And so I really hope it's emphasized that this was an international collaboration that was not just wonderful, because it is nice to be able to do something successfully like that, but it's needed. It was critical for, for this discovery that we all had our own skills and worked together well. Next, you need a rocket. Uh, I mean, Sarah really wants a rocket and I I am not immune to the charm of a shiny machine going and, and, and sampling. But most of the work that I do is trying to find biosignatures, primarily phosphine, on exoplanets. So I never have any hope of sampling them. And my efforts are very much focused on what can we do on Earth in the lab and to simulate the right environments that when we do detect a biosignature like phosphine on a planet, we can confirm that it's a sign of a biosphere without having to go there. And currently both to explain the presence of phosphine on Venus and to identify a biosphere anywhere, we need better lab data, more fundamental spectroscopic data, more reaction data. And these are really underfunded fields that don't get a lot of attention. It's thankless work for a PhD student. And I really would hope people would be keen to fund this work more with this discovery. And so, although I am, of course, excited about a sampling mission, I do wish some of the attention for the future work would go for this less shiny um, fundamental work. I couldn't agree with that more, but I also like a rocket. Here's Sarah Seeger. There's just several things to say that there is a large contingency of people in a lot of different countries, including the US, you know, in Russia, in India. Um, there are Europeans working on Venus, people all over. And there's a lot of people who want to send a mission to Venus. In the United States here, NASA has been supporting two missions. One's called Da Vinci, one's called Veritas. And those would be 
million missions that cost like a few uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And they're in what, a competition right now. It's called a phase A study. So there's four different missions. Two are about Venus and one of them will be selected to go to Venus. Hmm. There's quite a lot of things in the works. The Rocket Lab would bring something unique to the table because in NASA, in government, you know, we just try to please everybody. We want everyone to get something. But if you're a private company, you can just focus on one thing. And your timetable is your own. Also, the commercial space industry can take more risk. So it's really great that Rocket, Labs, Rocket Lab wants to go to Venus and have declared that they're going to. Is, are you going to be part of that mission? Yes, I'm hoping I'll be part of that mission. Now, I actually am leading my own mission study. And I got involved with a group called the Breakthrough Foundation. Breakthrough Initiatives there in the U.S., and they apparently had been thinking about studying a mission concept to Venus back in 2018 when they had asked some people in the community to like write up a white paper and what they might do. I wasn't part of one of those, but I started chatting with the breakthrough folks about a year ago. Last October, I was part of a panel in a big engineering. We don't do this now, of course, but we traveled to Washington, D.C. Hmm. And we're at a giant conference with people from all over the world. Like how crazy would that be today, right? People hmm. bringing coronavirus from all over the world. Yeah, yeah. So we were at this conference and they had invited me to join on a panel discussion about SETI, another search for extraterrestrial intelligence, another topic that they support. And we just got chatting about Venus, which I'm not really sure how that came up, but I expressed my huge enthusiasm for it. Of course, I couldn't tell them why. Yeah. I was just like, yeah, I'm working on Venus too. I really love it. And we just started having this conversation. And so eventually it led to, I guess, uh, well, it led to us working together on this mission concept study. And we have our kickoff meeting this Friday. Okay. So we're considering in our study, we're going to consider the biology and chemistry. We, we're not going to solve how life can survive on Venus, but we're, it's part of our study. So we can use that to formulate what measurements we want to make. And we're considering studying three missions, concepts. We call it small, medium, and large. Or you could call that fast, leisurely, and slow. And these would be focused missions to search for signs of life or even life itself in the atmosphere. And as we, the sort of core team, we've been meeting, you know, weekly since about May, we've networked through all the people working on Venus. And we did, we came across Rocket Lab as well and their interest. Mm. So, so that's you, why we've been talking. When you say you've been talking, do you mean, uh, uh, what does that mean? You've been sending emails, you've been having Zoom chats, what's been um, Well, we have one of the people from Rocket Lab. I invited him to join our core team, Richard French. So he knows what we're up to basically. And once in a while we've um, like talked specifically about theirs, but there's nothing formal yet. Okay. We're just sort of, it's in the early stages. Uh, we at least can say we're just in the early stages. Well, I can promise you this. If Physics World is still employing me to make this podcast when that mission becomes a certainty, we'll do an episode on it. But both Clara Sousa Silva and Sarah Seeger work on exoplanets primarily. And so I put this question to Sarah. If I gave you $10 now and said, okay, you're going to, Put that $10 on where life, and you're not allowed to do this because you want it to be Venus, right? You're going to put $10 on where we're first going to find life outside of Earth. Where? Well, as long as we're sticking with signs of life and not life itself, I do have to vote for my biggest bias and my true love, which is exoplanets. Because these exoplanets are numerous. There's a lot of them. And even though, at least in our generation, we'll only be able to study planets around the very nearest stars, I think eventually they have to yield something. There's so many of them. But it will only be a sign. 
And this phosphine on Venus is a really good lesson because we can find something and not have a great explanation. It might be that life is just one possibility. It, so it, it, this isn't a sign of life. It's a possible sign of life, isn't it? You could call it a possible sign of life. Okay. But even if we saw oxygen in the atmosphere of, a, of an exoplanet, would that still be a possible sign of life? Yes, it would. Yeah. So what would be a sign of life? Well, all of these biosignature gases, you know, even if in the future, the entire scientific community on Earth rules out every last possibility, and then we are left with only the one last explanation that there's, there has to be life producing it, you know, we're still not 100% sure. And so for exoplanets, we'll only see signs of life, and we can have various levels of certainty, qualitatively probably, you know, I'm certain. Would I bet my life on it? You know, I might not, but I might be bet my car or my house. You know, it could be like that. So we won't be certain for sure, but it's the best we can do with astronomy right now. What would it take to be sure? Like that is not really physics. That is, you know, the dream or the speculation or the science fiction movies that we make contact. The only way we can be sure is if we get that, hello. Part of the reason phosphine is my favorite biosignature is that it is a little special in that way, in that it can only mean life as far as we can tell. But even if there are some strange abiotic, exotic chemistry that we haven't considered, that's still a, a rare occurrence. While methane and water and oxygen are the lovely biosignatures in many ways, and likely to be abundant and easy to detect, so really wonderful in, in many metrics of what makes a good biosignature, they have very high levels of false positives, many known biological ways of making them. So most of the time uh, when I'm doing my work and it's not all phosphine, I'm advocating for the consideration of a holistic atmosphere where you don't just look for one biosignature, you look for as many molecules as possible so you can paint a picture of that potential biosphere and look for what is in disequilibrium what shouldn't be there for example oxygen can be produced abiotically in a variety of ways but the amount of oxygen on earth with the contextual gases that exist in the earth's atmosphere and our solar type with the sun and our type of planet where we don't have for example a really a runaway greenhouse gas evaporating the oceans there, oxygen is a robust sign of life because we can contextualize its presence with everything else. Phosphine is special because it needs less context. still needs some, right? It's not a sign of life on Jupiter, but it needs less context. It's a biosignature that is very hard to make, and so it's very hard for anything but life to make it. And that is the trade-off. You can look for a biosignature that is very abundant, but you will need to look for other less abundant molecules to resolve its false positives. Or you can look for a molecule like phosphine, which is likely to be less abundant because it's so hard to make, but you need less context to unambiguously assign it to a biosphere. If this is life. Big if. But if it is in the atmosphere of Venus, there's life here, we know that. Not all of it intelligent. And there's... Um, life in the atmosphere of Venus, that changes the way you look at exoplanets, doesn't it? Absolutely. If life happens not just somewhere like Earth, but somewhere like Venus, planets that have many things in common, but are different in quite dramatic ways, 
The likelihood that the solar system is unique, given that the sun isn't unique and our building blocks aren't unique, is minuscule. And that means that life is common and likely inevitable. If life originated both on Earth and on Venus, I expect it to be abundant throughout the universe. And there will be thousands and thousands of not just habitable, but inhabited planets in just our galactic neighborhood, waiting to be detected through quantum astrochemistry. And so I am thrilled for the world of opportunities that just opened up if there is indeed life on Venus. There's a question a lot of the media are asking, a lot of headlines posing the question, have scientists found life on Venus? There's a rule to do with headlines called Betteridge's Rule, and it states that any headline posed as a question can safely be answered with a simple no. In this case, the answer is no, but. No, but they've either found some truly bizarre chemistry or some truly bizarre biology. And they did that thanks to some simply brilliant collaboration between scientists in different fields. Next month's podcast, we'll be looking at something to do with the IOP's Quantum 2020 conference, which is an online conference happening from the 19th to the 22nd of October this year, and it's free to join. You can find that safely with a Google for IOP Quantum 2020. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.